0: Living the Word Today.
1: So, every time we open this book, it is a fresh opportunity for God to talk to us. Let's make sure, let's make very sure that we are listening to what He wants to say to us.
0: LivingTheWordToday.com. Look,
1: the message of the Bible does indeed prepare us for eternity, but it also prepares us for the day we are currently living.
0: Welcome to Living the Word Today. We invite you to spend the next few minutes studying God's Word with your Bible teacher, Jesse Wagoner. Pastor Wagoner's desire for you is not only to understand God's truth, but to help you live it today. More resources can be found on our website, livingthewordtoday.com. Now it is time to open your heart and your Bible for your time in the Word.
1: Back in chapter 1, we're just going to talk about the subject of disillusion, and that's exactly what we are looking at today. We're going to pick it up at verse 9. The last two weeks we've studied the first eight verses. I'm going to give you just the quickest review that I can do, possibly. But Habakkuk lived about 600 years before the time of Jesus. It was near the end of the, the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom. God had promised judgment was going to fall because they had been involved in idolatry and all sorts of wickedness. And because of that, he was going to bring the Babylonians in, also known as the Chaldeans, to come in and conquer that land. And it's been waiting and it's, 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 it's such that, that even Habakkuk knows that they need to be judged and he knows that righteousness needs to take place and he knows that, that God needs to do something significant and drastic and God needs to intervene in the affairs of mankind. And he prays, Lord, well, how long is it going to be, Lord? We've been waiting a long time. And then God gives him the answer, and that's what we looked at last time, verses 5 through 8. He says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do something that's going to be astonishing, Astounding. And if if I told you, you're not going to believe it. But I've raised up this empire under Nebuchadnezzar II, and he's going to come and we're going to just wipe your your land out, your country out. There's going to be a captive, a group captive taken captive. That will be a remnant that will return someday. And then that causes a problem for Habakkuk, and we're going to see that problem. He goes from sort of in his mind, Lord, when are you going to do something? Why aren't you doing something? God says, I'm going to do something. He says, then why are you doing that? That's kind of the progression through this text. But I want you to just... We're just going to talk about the problem, first of all. And we're just going to talk about some of the the things that are in these verses. And then I want to pull out four really important steps that you and I need to take when we face moments where we're disillusioned, when we're disappointed in life. So let's just get into the text. Verse 9. This is God still speaking in His first prophecy. And He's telling this... And we stop there because it kind of flows into the the second question and we'll end up in the first verse of chapter 2 in just a bit. All right? But... uh, Verse 9, they, now this is speaking of the, the Chaldonians, the Babylonians, they go by either name. Basically Babylon is the empire, Chaldonians is the people. They all, came for, they all come for violence. Their, their faces are set like the east wind. They gather captives like sand. Now we, we just read that and we just kind of turn the page and go on. But they would have, well, they would have plugged into this. There was an east wind that blew. And it still blows in the Middle East today. And it goes from east to west. In fact, some of this, this, this wind can blow even into Europe. But it's known as Sirocco. And it blows over the Mediterranean desert. And it builds up heat. And it, it just kind of pushes sand. Think of sand dunes and pushing it. And that's the picture he uses. It's just like that hot east wind that you've experienced. And it just blows over everything. You can't control it. You can't stop it. You only have to try to endure it. And he says, just like all those grains of sand blowing in the wind and the Sirocco winds, he's going to be moving people and they're going to come upon you like a just overwhelming cloud of dust and sand until you're just absolutely engulfed by them. So he says these things, you and I just read them as words, but they read them as feelings. They read them as emotions. They read them with a big gulp in their throat and something unsettling in their stomach. They scoff at kings and princes are scorned by them. Anybody's a person of authority, anybody that's a king, you think your king's going to save you, uh, that sort of thing. And by the way, we, we believe this happened during the, the kingdom of King Jehoiakim. And you can read about him in the last few uh, chapters of 2 Kings. He says they scoff at them. They don't listen to them. They don't, they don't respond to them. They don't answer them. So they understand this to be the case. They deride every stronghold, for they heap up earthen mounds and seize it. And That was their primary military strategy. And the people in Judah had heard this. They would come to, and by the way, the way you defended a city was you build walls around it. And you put soldiers on the top of the walls. You'd have guards looking out. You'd have a gate that could close and protect you behind these walls. They had oh, invent, invented technology to take care of that. They'd just build a big ramp up the side. And they'd do it under these kind of protective uh, uh, armaments that they would have. And they'd build up a ramp to the point they could just go right up the ramp, right on the wall, and right into the city. He says they have a way to do this. You don't really stand to, 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 to fare well in this. Then he says this, then his mind changes and he transgresses. He commits offense. In other words, whatever they think, they do. Whatever they want is going to happen. So, here's a back, Lord, how long are you going to deal with all before you deal with all the sin that's in our society? When are you going to bring justice to those who have been oppressed? And God says, "Here's what I'm going to do. It's going to be like the scorching east wind. It's going to be like an army that comes and has the best of technology. And whatever they decide to do, that's what they're going to do, no king can save you. Now think about that. Would that have been a very popular message in in his day? There were false prophets in the days of the latter kings that prophesied, oh, God's going to protect us. God owes us a favor. God's promises. We're people of the covenant. We're people of the one true God. We're living any way we want, but we're going to be okay. Then people like Habakkuk and Jeremiah and Nahum, these kind of people come along and start saying, you know what, that's not the way it's going to be. God is going to be intervening. So this causes a problem, primarily because of the phrase you see in the last, verse, last phrase of verse 11. Ascribing this power to his God. God speaking. Here's what they're going to do. They're going to do all this. You don't stand a chance. And all this victory is going to be given, who you know is given credit for it? To the God of the Babylonians. That's why it's a small g in your Bible there. A a false God. All this glory, everything, it's going to be attributed to this false God. And here's Habakkuk saying, Lord, you're the true God. How is this going to be? And that leads to his question beginning in verse 12. I'm going to read this, and then we're going to go back and we're going to pull the principles out as we get to that point. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. Shall we? Will we? Lord, you have appointed them for judgment. O rock, you have marked them for correction. Do you see his problem? God just said, they're going to win. You're going to lose. He said, Lord, you're, you're, you're God. Their God's a false God. Surely, they're the ones that are going to get it. You've marked them for destruction. It's not us. It's them that's going to get it. Verse 13, he kind of makes his appeal to God. Verse 13, you are of pure eyes than to behold evil. You cannot look on wickedness. Lord, you don't have anything to do with wickedness and evil. You're pure. You're holy. Why do, you look on a, why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he So in Habakkuk, he goes through this this sort of progression. Lord, I wish you'd do something about the sin in our land. He says, I'm going to do something. I'm going to send the the Babylonians in, and they're going to clean house. And he says, Lord, how could you use those wicked people to punish the people that are less wicked than they are? How could you? He's not really even questioning God's authority to judge. He's questioning God's methodology when he judges. How could you use wicked people to do a righteous act? How can you use them against us? This makes no sense to me. And the feeling that just descends on Habakkuk at that moment is a feeling of disappointment, confusion, disillusionment. What is this all about? Now, you and I do not face a judgment spoken by God that in in near term, remember he says, you're going to see this in your day. That's what he said back in the uh, the earlier verses 5 and 6. We don't have a prophecy that we're going to be destroyed and taken captive in the near term. I don't know the future, neither do you, by the way, so we just leave that at that. But but they had it on the books. God was prophesying. God was telling them. All the way back in Deuteronomy, we read it last week, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, he's telling them that if you don't obey, these things are going to take place in many other places. Jeremiah, who is a contemporary of Habakkuk, has a long book of the Bible where he's describing this and all about the Babylonian captivity. So with that in mind, he, he, he leads to this point of disappointment, disillusionment. Now, your disillusionment and mine, no doubt, is different. It's probably not as expansive. Maybe it is. Maybe we just think, Lord, why do we live in this world that's such a mess? Why is there all this evil? Why is things as they are? Why do what we say are bad things happen? Why does it seem unjust that this tragedy befalls this person or this person commits this heinous act? So we face that. So, Basically, what we need to do to understand this passage, we need to to create a feeling. We need to tap into that emotion of the moment about what that feels like. And then he's going to give us some great advice on how we start moving forward and learning to live by faith. Now, we're not going to look at what begins in 2 and verse 2, chapter 2 and verse 2, which is going to be God's answer. You don't want to miss that. That's what we're going to look at next week because that's really the the really powerful point of the book. It's kind of the, the peak of the book. So you see his problem. And then he uses this illustration to describe how this feeling feels. Now you remember back in verse 8, he talked about horses and leopards and, and wolves and all those sorts of things. So he's talking about predator and prey. That's the image he gives, that God gives. You are the prey, the predators are coming. Now he's going to use a metaphor. That might be a little closer to home for us. But he says, verse 15, Verse 14. Excuse me. Why do you make men like fish of the sea, like creeping things that have no ruler over them? So that might sound. Does that sound a little strange to you? We're fish. I mean, I mean that just kind of hits you, kind of like, where are we going with this? But you think about this. Question: If you are a, a little fish, what is your biggest danger in the pond you're swimming in? A bigger fish. And if you're a bigger fish, what is your greatest danger? In the pond you're swimming in, a bigger fish still. It's just, it's just the, the, it's might, it's strength, it's size. That's what rules the oceans. And for those of you that are fans of Shark Week, you've seen all that in display, right? I, w- always, I always root for the little seal trying to get away from the great white shark. I don't know about you, but, but uh, we understand. That's why he says, we're like fish, we're like prey, we're like, like helpless. And he talks about how they have no ruler over them. The ruler is not just someone to control them, give them advice. That's someone who is to protect them. He said, there's no one there to protect them. There's no one going to come in and protect them and, and make everything right. He said they face this, this imminent demise. Now, verse 15, he takes this a little further. They take them all up with a hook. They catch them in their net and gather them in their dragnet. Therefore they rejoice and are glad. And that's the fishermen of the day. This is part of the economy of Israel. Part of even part of our economy today, you understand. So He says it's like they're just fish that are ready to be swallowed up, to be netted, to be hooked. And if you get a big catch of fish, you're going to celebrate it. I've seen some of you with pictures online of the fish you've caught, and you're proud of it, and you hold it up, and some of you will take it and get it mounted on your wall so everybody can see your fish. You know, we still do these kind of things today. That's how he describes it. Now, interesting, he says, take them up with a hook in verse 15. On the relief statuary, or the relief sculpture that has been dug up, in the Middle East from the Babylonian era, one of the things they would picture, and this is gonna be a little bit grotesque, so just forgive me, because it's just true, okay? But what they would do, and they, they got this from the Assyrians, who was the dominant Gentile world power before the Babylonians. They would line up their captives, and rather than just putting chains around them, they would put a hook through the lower lip and tie them together lip to lip that way. And you say, that's brutal, that's, that's horrible, that's, that's awful, I'm sorry to put that in your mind. But the reason they did it was they treated people like fish they'd caught, like fish on a stringer, like fish on a hook. So he's bringing this imagery from their day, which we can confirm from archaeology in this day that this is what he's bringing into into play. He says, therefore they sacrifice to their net, verse 16, and burn incense to their dragnet, because by them their share is sumptuous and their food is plentiful. Now, he's echoing back what God had said. They ascribe all this to their God, small g. He says, "If this is how it feels, God. It feels like we're, we're the little fish in a big pond, and there's big fish after us. We don't stand a chance. We're going to be hooked. We're going to be netted. We're going to be supper, and we're going to be destroyed, and they're, and they're going to make sacrifices to their nets, and they're going to make offerings to the drag nets, because that's the way that they are going to give credit to their gods. Basically, Habakkuk is saying this what This is what he's saying. Hey, God, what's wrong with this picture? This does not make any sense. Why would you use wicked people? Why do you even tolerate wicked people? Why do you allow wicked people? And one of the things that Habakkuk has lost sight of is what sometimes we lose sight of when we deal with wicked people, and that is we're all wicked people. Even though we're wicked people, we haven't done as wicked to things as other people. And we haven't done all wicked things, but we all understand that there's some commonality to that. Verse, verse 17. Shall they therefore empty their net and continue to slay nations without pity? Lord, are you going to stop them? you going to put an end to this? And then he, he kind of sums his question in verse 1 of chapter 2. I will stand my watch. I will set myself on the rampart and watch to see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I am corrected. Lord, I'm done. I'm done talking. I'm going to sort of watch and listen now. So how do we handle this kind of disillusionment? Well, first of all, let me just put an idea in your mind, which I think summarizes what is really going on here. You, oh, we'll put this on the screen for you. If God's people refuse to fear Him, they will ultimately be compelled to fear those less worthy of fear. Now, let me just say that again because I want you to process this. If God's people refuse to fear Him, respect Him, obey Him, honor him, then you're going to be left to ultimately and compelled to fear those less worthy of fear. Part of it is it's this because and effect. You reap what you sow. You don't obey God, bad things are just going to ensue and wicked people are going to flourish when you have a society made up of people who embrace wickedness rather than righteousness that worship other things rather than the one true God. We'll fear those things. And we just understand that's, that's just a given. So what do we do? What do we do? How do we handle this? Four things. I just am excited to share these with you. And you're going to see them all in his prayer. The prophet's prayer request, his, his, his statement that begins in verse 12. It goes through chapter 2, verse 1. Number 1. You ready? Here it is. Number 1, don't suffer in silence. If you're disillusioned, there's someone you can take it to. There's someone that you can talk to. There's someone that understands. There's someone that's willing to give you a listening ear, and that's God Himself take it to him. Take it to him. Take it to him. What happens when we're in trouble? Well, I mean, I understand. Sometimes 911 is the first three numbers that cross your mind, and that might probably is effective and efficient. Wise. However, what does it, uh, what's it look like when we take the next step? Who do we call? We call a person. Well, there's some people in your life. You've got some people in your life you can call when you're in trouble. Thank God for that. Not saying that's not important. But somewhere early on in that situation, make sure you call upon God Lord I'm going to take this to you because these times of disillusionment can either do one of two things it can bring you, to the, bring you closer to God the one who has the answers even if he doesn't always give you all the answers you'd like and sometimes you've been there haven't you sometimes the deepest darkest moments of your life are those moments that you just kind of feel drawn in and close to him and sometimes when you're flat on your back and the only way you can look is up you look up and you see his face sometimes when you have no one else to help you there's no one else to turn to. When you find out there's, you don't have anything, you find out you have him and he's all you need. Or, it can push you away, thinking that we have to have all the answers. It has to make sense to us. We have to figure it out. I remember once, this is, I was early in ministry. There was a man in our church. He had just retired, just two or three weeks before this night, and I got a call from the paramedics saying, could you come to the house? We've been called there and, and I figured when you get called in the middle of the night, it's bad. And I get there and he had He had passed away of a heart attack. And I got there before his son who was on the way. His son came in, and uh, I knew from, and I found some of this out later, he and his dad had big plans after his dad retired. They were going to travel. They were going to do things. They had all these great, all these things we're going to do. Just two or three weeks after he retired, he's gone. It didn't make sense. It didn't make sense to me either. But it can either bring you closer to God. And I just watched over weeks to see this son. Just take that as an opportunity to blame God, to get bitter, and push away, and push away, and he got to the point where he had no place for God in his life. Disillusionment can draw you close, or it can push you away. The question is, we need to make sure we don't suffer in silence. We bring it to him, and we have to understand that he has the answers, even if we don't, and we don't have to have all the answers to be satisfied in him. It's as simple as this. Paul said it this way, pray without ceasing. In everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. He wants you to come to him. Number two, recite his greatness. Look how he begins. He begins so well. And I'm not faulting Habakkuk in any of this because it helps us. You, you, you are, are you not from everlasting? Yes. O oh Lord my God, my Holy One, he's holy. We shall not die and all that sort of thing. He goes into that. But he begins with praise. You are the everlasting God. You are the God of eternity. You're the God of all things. You're the God who is there. You're the God who is holy. You're the righteous one. And he recites everything he knows about God. Did that change his emotions? Did that change his situation? No. But it was drawing him a step closer to some peace of heart. When you don't know what else to do, praise God. When you don't know what else to think about, think about what you can thank him for rather than complaining about what you don't like. Offer your praises to him. If you need some help with that, God's given 150 chapters in the book of Psalms. A lot of them are filled with some great praise literature. You're welcome to borrow some words from someone else if you need them. But simply start with that. He starts with this, Lord, I'm not questioning that you're there. I'm not questioning that you're able. I'm not questioning that you don't care. I'm just, i I'm really struggling with what I expected in life and what I'm hearing in life. How could you use people more wicked than we are to punish us because of our sins? That makes no sense. Couldn't you come up with another, another way? Now God's going to give the answer later in chapter 2. Stand by for that. We'll get to that next week. But recite his greatness. Just recite everything you know about him and then seek to know more about him than you know now. Sometimes just a time of worship can brush away a lot of the stains of disillusionment in our lives. Start with praise. He does that. And then thirdly, sh- state your questions fully and freely. He just goes down to this. I, Lord, I thought you had pure eyes in this. I don't know why you're using them. I don't get it. We're like, fish of the, we're like the little fish in the sea. Big fish, big fish eat little fish. Hooks, nets, worship their gods because they're hooked, and we're going to all be destroyed and carried off and all this terrible stuff happening. Lord, I, I, I just, here it is. Take it. Here it is. I'd like an answer. Here it is. I know you have an answer. The great news is there may not be too many people in life that you can feel absolutely honest with. But God is big enough and strong enough to take it, whatever's the honest reality of your heart and soul, right now or any other moment, He can bring it to you. And the great news is he's worthy of that trust. If you trust him as your savior, if you've trusted him as your Savior, bring it to Him trusted him if you've never trusted him as savior we'd love to have a conversation with you and tell you about how you can be saved about how jesus died on the cross to pay for your sins and through belief in that you can have everlasting life maybe that's the starting point of faith for you and that's what you need to open your heart to we'd love to help you if we need help in that step of faith fourthly i love this how he states it in chapter two verse one i will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart i'm going to go up on the wall and i'm going to watch like a watchman watching what's coming I'm going to be looking out there. I'm I'm looking to see what you're up to. And he says this, And I will answer when I am corrected. Wait to be corrected. You might say, Lord, I'm going to wait till I get the answer. I think he already knew that in our way of figuring out what should be, most times we need corrected. Most times we are deficient in our thinking. We are deficient in our own self-view. We think of ourselves more important than we really are. We think of ourselves as more expansive than we really are. Uh, we're filled with pride, which the Bible says, Peter wrote, that was the condemnation of the devil. It's what got him in trouble, and it'll get us in trouble. We think it's all about us. So Lord, if you need to correct me, correct my thinking, correct my actions, correct my attitude, correct my belief system. Lord, I stand waiting. And that's what puts him in the place where God can deal deal with him and do business with him and we see in the rest of chapter two. Lord, I'm waiting. waiting. If you need to correct me, go ahead. You see, our self-view is often deficient and oftentimes our God-view is equally deficient. To believe that God is out there, God's going to intervene. One of the great lies of our time and one of the great lies of all times is this. God isn't going to intervene in the affairs of the world. God's absent. God's not out there. I assure you, in 606 B.C., down to 586 B.C., the people of Habakkuk found out that God intervened. And their their whole nation, their temple, everything was destroyed and they were carried captive. Seventy years later, God had dealt with Babylon, and a remnant of Israel came back to that land to restore that kingdom. Because God intervened in the affairs of man. God has intervened. He intervened nineteen hundred, almost two thousand years ago when Jesus came to this earth to be our Savior. And someday he'll intervene yet again. And we need to come to this place, Lord. It's us who need corrected, not you. So, what do we do? We understand, this was our idea, that that, that if we don't fear him, we'll all be, com- be compelled to fear those who are less 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 worthy, excuse me. Get your eyes on him. Take it to him. There's an old hymn that I love. It's one of my favorites. I have many favorites. It goes this. Oh, soul, are you wearied and troubled? No light in the darkness you see? There's light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's keep our eyes on I'm gonna...
0: Thank you for joining us for Living the Word today. We appreciate your sharing in this study of the scriptures. Also, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform so you will not miss a single episode. And thanks, too, for your prayers and for letting others know of this ministry as we seek to be Living the Word today. We would love to have your feedback and to hear from you, and the best way to contact us is through our website, livingthewordtoday.com. Until next time, may His blessing be yours.